Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Very clean. It felt like a very clean intro from me. And I want to take a moment to interrupt the flow of it to talk about how smooth that was. Good. Well, now you've, um, have you ruined it or? No, I've highlighted it. It's important to highlight your successes, Sydney. Is it? Like your own? Highlight your own? Don't let anybody steal your sparkle. That's what I say. Well, Sure. So what's your sparkle today, Sid? <laughs> what's what shine are you bringing? Uh, this feels like the opposite. This feels like the like a, a dullness. Tea then, or is it shade? Is it shade? No, it's it sounds like shade. I, I wanted to address. I, I know on Sawbones we usually talk about history, ancient stuff, Pliny the Elder, et cetera, et cetera. The whole bit. Uh, but there was a, a, a news article caught my eye, a title of a news article caught my eye, and I found several news articles that were titled similarly, and I thought this would be worth addressing on our show because it kind of speaks to the nature of science, and medical science is not excluded from this, that things change over time. Mm-hmm. We learn new things, and our ideas and our, our understanding changes, and if you're not careful with how you talk about that, you might say something like uh, almost 400 medical practices found ineffective. Mm. Scientists declare nearly 400 medical practices ineffective. Hundreds of current medical practices may be ineffective. Or I actually liked, I thought this was the um, the least scary. 10 findings that contradict medical wisdom doctors take note so you're saying that this is all fake news no no (laughs) you are no the me the the media the anti-medicine media no i refuse to i refuse to use that term and i also refuse to ever say sad with a period at the end as if that is it as if i have expressed a thought but uh i do i do think that while these are accurate in terms of what what they're saying, their their accurate statements, they sound very alarming because you have to imagine there are only so many medical procedures and practices, and if four hundred of them have been found ineffective, you your the question I think for the average reader would be, has my doctor done one to me? Here's the thing, folks. You shouldn't. There are certain reporters at every outlet, and I'm probably not as many as there used to be. Some people have expertise, but generally speaking. Reporters don't know anything about the topic. Like, it's like you can't know everything about everything. So they're just kind of trying to go with the most accessible angle. 
that's why you know we Sydney tends to rely on like um, reporting for from like journals, medical journals. Exactly, because the the study that they're referencing, uh, which. I mean, this is, they're not, again, I'm not saying they're wrong. This is accurate. This is factually accurate. There was a recent study that was published on an open access journal called eLife. And it goes through, it details 396. So I guess you could say it's not 400. I guess that's not technically, (laughs) it's almost 400. 396 medical reversals that have occurred in the last 15 years. And they just, they went through uh, three of the top rated like most read medical journals, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Uh, Journal of the American Medical Association or JAMA is what we tend to call it. JAMA. Yeah. The New England Journal of Medicine, which we don't call NIJM because that NIJM. that doesn't make no, sense. That, no. Nothing. That's nothing. Uh, and the Lancet. And they looked through the last uh, 15 years. They went through about 3000 randomized control trials and looked for any sort of commonly practiced accepted like wisdom dictates this is what we do medical practice from today that had been reversed through study and it's important i think for us to talk a little bit about i want to give you some examples of some things they found and what this really means and what what they were really indicating as opposed to the idea that all like your doctor may have no idea what they're doing which mm-hmm. i think is what you m- may That's glean a, from that right so first of all medical reversals are always going to happen because we get better at things we learn new things. Our technology gets better. Our, our science gets. I mean, we—that's the nature of science, you right? Could, you could say that our entire show is is about medical reversals, honestly, right? Yeah, we get better at things. And we understand things better. I mean, we're, we we know that. Well, it's interesting. Like uh, people always like to talk about bloodletting or leeches as something like we used to put leeches on people, and we did, and then we realized that for most things that doesn't work, and then we realized that for some things it actually could work. So. There's a there's a big old medical flip flop, yeah. right? Yeah. That's science. It's flip flopping. Sad. <laughs> uh, but basically, a medical reversal is a if you find a low value medical practice, uh, and and that we have found that through further study and randomized control trials. Now wait, what do you mean by low value? Low value meaning that it is not giving the benefit that you would expect of a standard of care. Okay. So that doesn't mean that it doesn't help anyone, it's, right? It's helpish. <laughs> it's helpful-ish. It means that it's probably all, you know, once you do the once you do the study and the math and I mean cuz this isn't about one individual person. We're talking about once you g- do it to or give it to a lot of people, it's probably not really better than some other previous standard of care or or something else that you might do right so it's not actually a a, a better treatment or procedure that's what we're talking about it can be difficult to figure out that i mean that seems like an obvious thing right like how did you not know that it wasn't working or that it wasn't as effective as you wanted well the problem is early on when we test new procedures or or medicines uh one we can only test them in so many people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to do clinical trials. You have to try things before mm-hmm. you start deploying them widespread. Uh, so that's part of it is that you don't know until you until you release something out to everyone how effective or ineffective ultimately 
it might be. Right. Um, <clears throat> two, if you're talking about something that we have no previous treatment for or procedure for, and then you find a way to do something or treat something, it, it's going to be adopted a lot faster, you know, because not all of these are like drugs. Some of these are just ways of like protocols and things. Mm hmm. And if you've got nothing else and this is the first thing, okay, well, okay, let's try this because we had nothing previously. And then over time you realize like, uh, well, this might not actually be as effective as one would hope and we're probably gonna have to find a better way. So this is just part of the process. These, this doesn't necessarily mean that doctors don't know what they're doing. Uh, part of the reason that it's hard to find these things sometimes is that you have to do an intensive review of a practice like a double-blinded or a randomized control trial, something has to be done that takes money to study it. And a lot of that has to be done by an independent organization from whoever made the, the device or the pill or whatever we're talking about, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, they already did, they already paid all their money and did all their trials. So to do these reviews, it usually takes like a government organization, some sort right. of grant funded study, something like that. The other thing is uh, you each each review, like if we talk about Cochrane reviews, Cochrane reviews are done uh, to look at the like how high quality is a medical practice. And, and you can usually trust if there's been a Cochrane review of a procedure or a medicine or something that says it works, it works. If Cochrane review says it doesn't, it doesn't. So you can trust these reviews because they're very intensive, mm -hmm. but they they're very focused. Each Cochrane review just looks at one one sim single thing. It would take a long time to do that for everything we do in all of medicine. Mm -hmm. So we don't have those for everything. Right. Okay. They just couldn't exist. Um, so. The other thing is, how do we get this information, right? Like once something has been proven to be not as effective, how do doctors find out about it? Oh. Well. Uh, Why are you asking me? They listen to this episode? <laughs> That's recursive logic, Sydney. I mean, it can be hard. It can be hard to find out. Everything moves so quickly. Stuff that I learned in medical school has already been proven false and then proven true again and then proven false again since I graduated, um, which I... Uh, is getting longer and longer ago, but mm -hmm. it's still not that long ago. So things move quickly and you can read the journals and you can try to keep up, but you can't read every journal. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. You can try to stick to the ones in your specialty and maybe some of the more general ones, but you, you can't keep up with everything. Uh, a lot of, I know my fellow physicians will go to something called up to date, which is up-to-date information that we have access Good to. Good name for it. Yeah. Uh, you got to pay a lot to get access to it. Um, I, I luckily, prefer, our institution I prefer does. that old junk. And that's a different <laughs> one I use where it's just all outdated, whack medicine that, that I can get for cheap. And my patients are crazy about it because the value. Is that? Do you find that it works for you and your patients? In your practice? I mean, where you either, practice? What do you do? Either they keep coming it? back or they don't. Mm -hmm. That's kind of well, my philosophy. <laughs> Either way, either I make a bunch of money or I get to go home early and play Halo. More of a more of a caveat emptor. Kinda, sure. Kinda. Listen. <laughs> I don't I don't speak Spanish that it I'm sorry. <laughs> I know that makes my practice more narrow. I would love to be welcome more more patients, but I'm just building a practice right now. So before I before I get more into why what are the barriers 
to all doctors knowing these things as soon as they are proven, as soon as the study is done. And, and we as soon as, before I get into that, I want to talk about some of the examples so that you kind of see what a medical reversal really means. Yes. Put them on blast, it's, Sydney. It's not it's not like, well, it turns out that that surgery I just did on you was totally wrong and I accidentally <laughs> made you sicker. It's not like that. I mean, it sounds it can sound very dramatic, but it's it's often a lot less uh, exciting than you than you would probably want it to be. Certainly, I would think as a I imagine reporters had a rough time finding things as they look through this list of 396 practices that would be very exciting to write about would be my thought. Right. So when they broke it down, they found that the most common thing that there was a change in was something to do with cardiovascular disease. And this makes sense because we're still understanding as scientists, as doctors, all of the roots of cardiovascular disease. And you know that intuitively if you think about how often we change dietary recommendations, right? Right, sure, yeah. I mean, we we lived in a no-fat world for a while. And then we realized, well, that's not really the problem. Carbs are the problem. Sugar is the problem. Mm -hmm. And now we're moving towards plant-based diets are probably... The key that seems that's that's where the evidence seems point. So it's it's really hard. I mean, things have changed and we've we've gone down weird avenues where we thought like everybody should drink wine for a while and that olive oil was the key to success. So if you think about how often we change dietary recommendations in terms of heart health, then it makes sense to you that we've changed our concept of cardiovascular disease a lot over time. We just still have a lot to learn as to the whole process, how how it happens and why some people are at higher risk than others. Um a lot of things with public health and preventive medicine change. Uh, and again, that just has to do with you've got to see what's best for a whole population. And you can't know what's best for a whole population until you try something in a whole population. Right. 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 Uh, you can't. It's hard to find figure that out in a lab. You really need it to be in vivo. Um, and then they also found that the most common thing to be reversed was like a medication if we're talking about a type as opposed to a procedure or a supplement or a device or a whole system, the most common thing that we found over time was that a medicine wasn't as effective as we had hoped it would be um, or as somebody had hoped it would be. I guess the the pharmaceutical company that made it. Put them on blast, Sid. So, no, I'm not putting anybody on blast. This is how like science what? works. Tell me this about all this stuff that my doctor has been doing that it turns out was nothing. So to start with some medicines, because I think most people want to know what medicines don't really work. Hold there on. Were, let me go to the cabinet so I can just start throwing this stuff out as you say it. The the one example that I already started to talk about, I want to explore a little bit more. There were there was a study that looked into Zopaclone, which is. Hold on. How do you spell it? I'm throwing it out. I'm looking through my bottle to see oh, if I have right. any. Oh, okay. Z-O-P-I-C-L-O-N-E. Okay, I don't have any of that. We're fine. Okay, which is a type of uh, medicine for insomnia that it's very similar to Ambien or Zolpidem. Okay. Um, and actually, some of the studies even explored Ambien. The one they focused on didn't, didn't, but they. I think you could put Ambien in the same, based on the other studies, into the same category. What they found was that for insomnia... It's actually not very helpful and that neither Ambien or this this other drug, Zipoclone, were better than cognitive behavioral therapy. And this is this is a big deal to suggest that these sleeping pills are not very good for sleeping. It's also that's that's a I would say there are a lot of people and probably some listening who would say, well, that's not true for me. 
these medications are widely prescribed. A lot of people take them. And I've observed people fall asleep, fall asleep (laughs) on Ambien. And so this seems very counterintuitive. But what what they found is at the end of the day, once you give it to enough people and then you start asking them about their overall quality of sleep and you, you look over a long term. It's probably not that effective. Hmm. And it's certainly not as effective as cognitive behavioral therapy that focuses on the root problems of insomnia. Exactly. Uh, But you can see why these medicines are still being prescribed. One, CBT takes a lot more time. It is also, is it available to you? Is it something that you can easily access? Mm-hmm. You know, how much money does your insurance cover it? Almost never. The, and then there's it's just the, harder to access. There's the, Then there's the weed connection that I think that freaks people out. CBT, does it get you high? It doesn't. Or it's Not very CBD. mellow high. Not, no. CBT. CBT. Okay. Y'all did that on purpose. Uh-huh. I know yeah. you all. We're just tricking you. Uh, another thing that I found very interesting Uh, so I wear a watch that counts my steps and I have used apps with which to track my calories. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that sort of wearable or, or stuff you would carry with you technology to track your movements or your calories or whatever has zero impact on weight loss. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, but maybe fitness. Well, they didn't study that. I don't know. Okay. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying if you're doing that in pursuit of weight loss, it like right now we don't have evidence that it's going to help. That's what I'm saying. That's which again doesn't specious links though, right? Like I don't know. Doctors recommend this stuff, but there's not a great. But there's also not a great link between fitness and weight loss, right? That's I mean that's the bigger thing, right? Like there's we don't have a good connection like weight loss and fitness exercise right exercise like your physical fitness are different things that we i think have tied up right and we know that health health is a distinct fitness and health is a distinct entity from weight right and the two should not be tied together because there is no ideal weight you need to be to be healthy you can be healthy at many different weights you know those are two different concepts right Yes, I agree. I agree completely. But I think if I am a and I have been this doctor who has said to a patient who's asking me how how should I keep track of what I eat or know? How do I know better what to eat and what not to eat? And I have shown them apps that they could download. I mean, I've talked to them about this stuff and that's not evidence based. Sounds like they're more like craps. (laughs) As a scientist, I should do things that are evidence based, not just that make me feel good. Right. Uh, another thing that I thought would be interesting to people, the use of compression stockings, mm-hmm. those like tight hose that they'll put on you in the hospital. Sometimes some people wear them outside the hospital, but you, you see them a lot used in, and this is where this was done. Sexy and therapeutic. <laughs> what they, they put them on you to try to prevent a blood clot from forming in your leg. And what they found is that when used after a stroke, cause we use them a lot after a stroke cause people are bed bound frequently for some period of time uh, that they do not reduce the risk of a blood clot, but we still use them. Now, is this harmless? Probably like, is this for most people this is a very benign thing to do. Uh, but I think this would fall into that category of you don't want to do nothing. This is when I, when you were mentioning this to me, this is one of the ones you talked to me about. And it's an interesting thing because it's like, okay, well they probably don't help. Well, 
if you don't use them and then the patient gets a blood clot, you are then like, it looks bad for you, right? Like, Well, it they could be and probably are at many institutions still considered standard of care. Right. Um, and standard of care can be, I mean, it's it, standard of care is really based on what your institution does and what the doctors around you do and what doctors kind of accept as normal. Mm-hmm. And doctors would accept this as a normal practice right now. So, yeah, it would be really hard to defend yourself if you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other ways, by the way, of preventing a blood clot. I know there, there are probably medical people listening take going, a, we'll just do something else. Take but, all the blood out. Well, no, no. There are blood thinners. Husk there are reasons we... <laughs> Ow. We've been experimenting with husking at my clinic. Uh, a couple other things. I don't want to. I don't want to get into t- things that are. A lot of these things get really deep into medical practices that, yeah. and they're just not like for most people to be like. Okay. And you may think of it as a sawbones listener. You may think of someone who's interested in this stuff. You don't know. You don't know how deep some of these go with Sid. The the one that one that shook me was the use of contact precautions in an ICU. They did a, they, what they found is they did a, a study where they looked at if you wear the, if you've ever been in a hospital, you'll see, you'll see people put on these like paper gowns and gloves before they go into a room. And mm-hmm. we call that contact precautions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do that to resist, to try to prevent especially resistant bacteria, things like MRSA, uh, methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. MRSA, mm-hmm. most people call it, or VRE, vancomycin resistant intercoccus, things like that. We tr- we try to prevent those very like I hate to use the term superbugs, but this is what people call them: superbugs, strong bugs, strong, very resistant bacteria from spreading. And mm-hmm. so we wear this stuff. And what they found is that it didn't help. Oh no! It didn't do anything. And we have these paper gowns all over our hospital, and we have to wear them so much, and they're such a pain in the butt, and everybody hates them. But you get in trouble if you don't wear them, so everybody wears them. Right. And then they did a study that said they probably don't help. Oh, no. I found, But again, what if we just stopped? People are still going to get MRSA. Right. It, I, so right now, I don't see that as a practice that's going to stop. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sorry that... Everything you learned is... I guess we're kind of on an even playing field again, if there, you think about it. We're kind of like even... With the amount of stuff we know, because like the stuff you knew turned Uh out that was all wrong. I never learned it in the first place. I'm almost got a leg up, blank slate. (laughs) Do you think about that? Uh, I different perspective on it that I bring. Well, that's the kind of fresh perspective I bring. Yeah, an institution like yourself, somebody who's part of the institution, uh huh, uh, wouldn't be able to see it that way. Fresh, fresh eyes, fresh thinking. I wanna, I wanna talk a little bit more about this and and why it takes a while for this information to sort of disseminate through the medical community. Um, and also I want to reference that this is not the first time a study like this has been done. So this is, while this sounds very dramatic and exciting, this is this is just the process. But before we do that, let's go to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web 
design artist, but you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. What are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box? Pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I'm eating filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. So, Justin, I want to talk about a few more of these uh, these medical reversals before okay. we discuss this further, because there were just a few more that I thought were interesting. Um, as I as I said, this was not the first time a study like this had been done. This same group of researchers who did this uh, comprehensive review of randomized clinical trials in three medical journals reveals 296 medical reversals. That's a name. That's a cumbersome name for an article title. But mm -hmm. this is science. It's actually much less cumbersome than the majority of them, I would say. Uh, they previously, just a few years ago, did another one where they had about 150 or so, I think, mm -hmm. in that one. But same idea. So, I mean, this isn't a new. We're constantly reevaluating the things we're doing. Uh, some interesting things that they'd found more recently or in the recent past. So, you know how sometimes in health class they'll try to teach you about teen pregnancy by giving you a doll like a like a live like one of those dolls that cries and pees. and Yeah. My real baby or something. Something and to like take care of. And mm -hmm. it's a way of trying to like scare you to not have a baby before you're ready. Mm -hmm. Those don't work. Oh, no. They're no, they're not effective. Because you have so much fun taking care of the baby of doll. Pregnancy. And then they just think I can handle it. Well, I, I'm not saying they increase the rate of They do. Pregnancy, they're very romantic. <laughs> but they do not decrease. Which, 
you know, which you think like, well, what's the harm? Well, I mean, that's money and goodness knows our public schools don't have enough money and we're going to spend money on a bunch of dolls for them to take and it didn't do any good. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, we could talk about sex more in a frank, open way. Yeah. That might be a better option, better route to go. Um, and less expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, but some, some other things that I think it's interesting because when you hear about some of these other things that are even just a few years older, this is stuff, even if you don't know this, even if, as I'm saying it, if you are, if you are outside of the medical field, you might hear these things and go, is that, what are doctors doing? I don't know. I, as a physician read some of these and thought, oh, well, well, I know this. This is well. Of course, that was a reversal. We we do this the new right. thing now. Right. For instance, it was just a few years ago that they kind of reevaluated their position, our position as physicians on how uh, intensively we should control glucose for a diabetic patient. Okay. There was a push for a while to like get those numbers as close to normal as possible, and what we found after doing a lot of research is that. If you are too intense with your attempts to control uh, glucose, you actually do more harm than good. Hmm. You're not improving their outcomes and you are increasing the risk that they'll have a low glucose episode, hypoglycemic episode, which can be much more dangerous acutely. Yeah. So uh, so there was a lot of information given to doctors to like mm, maybe ease up just a little. That doesn't mean like eat more cakes. Right. I mean, doctors <laughs> Chill out a bit. Chill out a bit. Um, maybe our maybe our goals don't need to be quite so regimented because we're not actually helping people with with these goals. Um, there were something like a prostate exam. Mm-hmm. You're good. familiar with the concept of a prostate exam? Oh yeah, that's where they go check the nonozone with their hand or tools and look for. A prostate. There were, there were so many different things wrong with that on different levels. I'm just going to let you, I'm going I'm to stop you before you do more harm. <laughs> I took an oath. <laughs> to first do no harm. And I'm going to stop you at this moment. That counts enabling me to do harm, I think. <laughs> yes, I, just, I shouldn't have asked. So we can examine a prostate for those uh, of you who have one, for, for, for prostate having folks. We can examine them in different ways. Uh, there's the digital rectal exam where you insert a finger into the rectum and feel mm-hmm. the prostate mm-hmm. or the subject can, of, all, of so many great stand-up comedy routines. It really is. Uh, or you can do a blood test. A PSA is what it's called. Prostate specific antigen. You can do that too. And they're, they're both used sometimes, but what we found is that just routinely doing these tests on everybody mm-hmm. probably doesn't help at all. Hmm. So the idea how, how that, that be? How, do, how does it not help at all? Well, so this is an interesting thing we've learned. The more we learn about certain types of cancer, uh, the better we are at managing them, because specifically when it comes to prostate cancer, it in not and this is not across the board. This is a generalization. This mm-hmm. is, again, statistically in in many, many patients. It's so slow growing that you're actually more likely to die with prostate cancer than of prostate cancer hmm. Wow! Okay. Uh, because of the age that it affects most people who get it and and how slow it it can move in many cases we're better off not being very aggressive mm-hmm. um, that's one thing that changed our monitoring too 
the digital rectal exam is difficult to perform well every time. Hmm. You're just kind of blindly feeling around. And unless you feel like a distinct hard mass on the prostate, you're kind of guessing, like, is it bigger? I mean, and they just found doctors in general are not very good at it. Certainly there are probably some who are better than others, but generally doctors just aren't very consistent with their findings. You know, when when somebody is putting their finger in your b-hole, the thought that I think I would have is, I bet they're good at this. <laughs> I, bet, I know this is um, uh, unpleasant for me, but I bet this is a talent of theirs that they are skilled at, and this is very necessary and important. This, and, and please let me underline. Certainly they wouldn't. <laughs> Certainly they wouldn't insist on me taking down my pants and putting the fingers in my butthole if it wasn't very important and wet and thoroughly tested. <laughs> Here's the problem. I'm oh, not, I know I am, the problem, Sydney. And I and this is why I'm being very careful about how I'm I'm saying this. I am not saying that no one needs a prostate exam. They can be very beneficial in in the right patient in the right situation performed by With the right, right physician. delicate fingers. I'm just knowing I'm just saying probing fingers. that just every doc across the board doing routine prostate exams as part of their well you know preventive health checkups. I should say like a well visit, a you know preventive visit is has not been proven to improve outcomes when it comes to prostate cancer. Uh, that is what I'm saying. So. There are certainly doctors who do a lot more prostate exams and they're probably better at it because they do so many more. The experience helps. Uh, So, again, this is not me saying never get a prostate exam. If your doctor suggests you might need one, then you probably need one. Then I would talk to them about it. But if your doctor isn't doing one on you, uh, I mean, certainly ask. Always ask. If you have questions, always ask. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're neglecting an essential part of your health. Right. You just might not be in a in a group that statistically would benefit from those exams mm-hmm. um, without symptoms. Uh, and there are many, I, I could keep going. There's a huge list of all these different things that they discovered. Um, and, uh, and like I said, these are things that I know. The, these things I'm listing right now, they, we've already made these changes. So yes, these were reversals, but they have drifted throughout the medical community. And people know um, the big cholesterol drug Zetia was on the list. You probably saw the commercials for Zetia. This is the one where the people look like eggs. Yeah, you could have gotten it from, you. maybe you have high cholesterol from eggs, or maybe you have it from Uncle Egbert or something. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to tell you that like cholesterol comes from both food and genetics is the point, I right. think. But the, their big point is buy, our, buy Zetia. Uh, it really was not very effective. And... The thing is, this was one of those cases where the randomized control control trials proved it. But I got to tell you, if this brings you any any comfort, many of us physicians already knew that and weren't using it widely. Um, One, because it was expensive and brand name and two, because it wasn't effective. Yeah. Um, So it, it and I'm not saying again, this doesn't mean that in every single patient it's utterly ineffective, but it means broadly prescribing it to everybody is not going to help people. I mean, that's not a good idea. Um, well, why is, why is this bad? I mean, what is it? What is it? How's it hurting us? So part of the way that this is hurting us, because many of these things that I've said are benign, not all, but many is the cost. So there was a, 
a study in 2014 of 26 different low value services that were provided through Medicare. The reason they did that is because it's a lot easier to Medicare collects a lot of data. It's a lot mm. easier to analyze if you go through something like Medicare. Um, but the the estimated spending on low value services, meaning services that I like the ones that I've mentioned that could well be reversals. Uh, was between 1.9 and 8.5 billion dollars in 2008 to 2009 alone. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yeah, a lot of money. It's a lot. A lot. So one, we spend ridiculous amounts of money on healthcare in this country, especially when you consider the outcomes that we get for that. You know, how many people still don't get proper care? Uh, and this is money that we shouldn't be spending, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so cost is a huge problem, and then you get into the the. I would say the more immediate concern for me and you, which is some of these things could do harm. So putting compression stockings on somebody, whether or not they need them or wearing wearing a paper gown when I go into a patient's room to protect them and me from spreading bacteria. Those aren't harmful things inherently. They will be benign, maybe a waste, but not right. I mean, like it's not dangerous. But when you do talk about some of the medications, they do have side effects. Sure, right, or contraindicated mm-hmm. is one thing I like to, I know that that means. That is, and I would say there aren't a lot of these reversals where they found medicines that were, we gave you something to try to fix it and it actually made it worse. I mean, right, that's not really right. what we're talking, we would have figured that out. Inefficient. Yes, that maybe it works in so few people that you would have to treat so many people to see any statistical benefit. Because mm-hmm. again, I'm not saying that you know, Ambien works for somebody probably. Sure. It just doesn't work for as many people as we hoped. Um, why does it take this long though? Why does stuff, I mean, cause you know, we do all these clinical trials and the FDA has to approve meds and devices and blah, blah, blah. I, mean, so I like, guess, I have a guess. Is it money? Money's a big, a big part of it. If you look at like who funds the trials that where they found reversals, who funds the research that checks the research. Or a competitor. <laughs> Non-industry sources. Yeah. The vast majority are non-industry. Like what? Like the government? Like the government. Yeah. So what you need is you need somebody who doesn't have a vested interest in making money off of something to tell you whether or not it works. (laughs) I know. Surprise, surprise. And again, I'm not saying that pharmaceutical companies are all lying. I'm just saying that if you really want a non-biased view of whether or not a drug works, you probably need somebody outside the pharmaceutical company to do that study. Yeah. Um. But most of the time, most of the time, if they say it works, it works. But there you go. Uh, the other thing is dissemination of information. We're getting better at stuff. Things are changing. I mean, daily. Mm-hmm. It, it's very quick that something that was effective isn't or now we have something better or, oh, turns out we shouldn't well, do that are anymore. busy. I mean, you got patients to see and you got uh, you got all, all all kinds of stuff to keep track of. It's tough to just uh, you know look at look at the latest trends and pills well i mean that's part of it when we're taking care of people we can't be reading journals right and i think if you're if you're the patient you want me focused on you and not a journal at that moment mm-hmm. so there's a lot of journals to read there's tons of articles to read research is changing every day that you know the data changes every day we were constantly trying to keep up and then it's who is where is the information being published you get into a lot of politics I, where like journals are publishing, what I, articles are they publishing and how big were the studies and who, who, who is behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just sometimes hard to disseminate that information quickly. I got a solution to this. What? 
So you, what you do is when a patient shows up for their appointment, you hand them one j- new journal article <laughs> and have them read it for comprehension get it to a point where they understand it really well. And then as they're making small talk with the doctor, they just drop the facts in about their one journal article that they read. So like mm-hmm. while you're treating the patient, you're also learning from the patient who just read this one journal article. Do you think as a patient that you would enjoy that? Yes. Really? Yeah. To being able to, to help, you know, shape the, the future of medicine. That's uh, Teddy stuff. Well, hey, I mean, I don't mind this plan. I'm behind it because it really that's part of it is just trying to keep up with the constant uh, influx of information. Maybe they could print it on a shirt that the patient is wearing. So as you're doing the checkup. (laughs) See, now I think things are getting out of hand. Uh, And, you know, the other thing that makes it hard is if if we're talking about something where we have found a treatment and we have nothing else, even if it's not even if we know it's not the most effective thing, if it does anything that feels better than doing nothing in the face Mm -hmm. of disease. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a very human impulse. And I think honestly, which is why we all need to be more open and talk about these things, Mm -hmm. not doctors, patients too. Like we need to tell patients this, Mm -hmm. I don't know that this is going to help you, but it's all I have. And if you want to try it, let's work together. Let's give it a shot. I have some evidence that says maybe it would help a few people, but I got a lot of evidence that says, it's not as effective as we we wish it would be, mm-hmm. but this is what we have. I mean, I think that the the more transparency and the more open you are about these conversations, then you don't get hit with a news article, a news story like these that can be very disturbing that tell you that your doctor is doing four hundred things to you that don't work and you don't know about it. Because mm-hmm. um, it's that's it's. If you take one thing from this episode, that's what I want to get across is that it is not that doctors are doing a bunch of stuff and have no clue, you know, that it that it didn't work. It's just that science is constantly changing and we're reevaluating. And if you challenge your physician with many of these things, they'll probably already know that and they're not doing them and they probably don't apply to you anyway. Well, that's, 400. that's reassuring. Uh, folks, thank you so much for listening to our program this week. We hope you've enjoyed yourself. Um, we, uh, we, we sure have enjoyed having you here on the show. I mean, we are not on the show with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Appreciate it. Yes. And take, this is one of those episodes that I hope inspires you to ask your doctor questions. You know, I mean, always ask questions. I never mind being asked questions. It doesn't Uh, hurt to say, Hey, tell me about this pill I'm taking or tell me about this pill you want me to take. Let's talk about it. Um, ask your questions. July 16th, uh, 17th, and the 19th, I'm going to be on the road on tour with my little brother Griffin talking about the Adventure Zone graphic novel as part of our little book tour. Um, I'm leaving my family, so please don't let my sacrifice be in vain. Come out and see me. Uh, go to bit.ly forward slash become the monster or McElroy.family and click on tours and you can find those and a lot of other shows that are uh, coming up in the near future. So. Uh, we have a book called The Sawbones Book that you can buy. That is accurate. It is accurate. Uh, it is a very good book that we wrote and Sydney's sister Taylor illustrated. And it's good. Lots of pages in this one. Thank you to the taxpayers for the use of our song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thank you to you for listening. That is going to do it for us for this week. So, until next week, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. 
Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.